Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him After the Apocalypse, a Pandemic Survival Story, Season 2, Episode 3, The Hungry River. Janet glared through the sleet up the hill, searching for the Humvees that she expected to appear over the crest at any moment. Oh, wait, that's the other podcast. Hold on, let me get back to this other one. It's going to scroll up a little bit. Here we go. All right. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-464 of the Run Run Live podcast. Yeah, that's my other podcast. Let's see if I can even get this out on time for a change, huh? Every two weeks, I can do it. Today, we have the legendary coach, Chris Twiggs, on for a chat. And I met Coach Twiggs down at the Bird in Hand Half Marathon, which... I'm not going to do a race report on, because, uh, you know, I just sort of walk-jogged it. It wasn't any, <laughs> I don't know if I consider it a race, but it certainly is a great get-together. I mean, the food is fantastic. They had this barbecue spread after, and, you know, you didn't have to pay anything extra for it. They just gave it to you. They got these giant medals made out of uh, old, there's Ollie, old horse shoes that the, Amish shoes, and it's all on like a big Amish farm, and the corn's 10 feet tall. Stunning scenery, lots of animals, really different race in a nice way. So you should go down and do that race. So anyhow, Chris, <laughs> he's the head coach for Jeff Galloway's running program. He's a high-level marathoner, good marathoner, qualified Boston marathoner, ultra marathoner with like 20-something Hundreds, ultramarathons in his own rights. He likes the hard rock. That's his race. And it was interesting to me to compare and contrast the Galloway athletes that he coaches to the stuff that he's doing and the more, you know, traditional training modalities. And the net net of all this is that runners, whether they are elites, you know, like you, <laughs> the age groupers, the hundred mile a weekers, the casual athlete, the back of the packers, they're all as passionate about our sport and as curious about it, about the sport and training as anyone else. It runs through the population and the demographics of our sport. And in section one, since we have a ton of new runners these days in the apocalypse, with basic questions, I'm going to give you a piece on how to get started from scratch. Yeah, from doing nothing to being a runner. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, you maybe want to just skip to that part. <laughs> because uh, I'm going to talk about some other stuff now. What you're really going to be excited about is that I'm going to start you out with an update on how my garden turned out this year. And then I'm going to close it with an update on Ollie, my border collie. And here's why, runners. Because when I meet folks who listen to my podcast, this podcast, do you know what they ask me? Do you know what they want to know? 
Is it, hey, do you have any training tips? You know, tell me about that race adventure. No, 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 no. That's not what they want to know. They want to know, how did your garden turn out this year? And they want to know, hey, how's Ollie, that crazy border collie? So, hey, I am customer driven. I'm going to lean in. So, in the intro here, we're going to talk about the garden. It was a very interesting year for us gardeners up here in New England. We had some successes and some not-so-successes. My tomatoes struggled. Everybody's tomatoes in this area struggled because we had an epidemic of some sort of tomato disease that caused all the leaves to turn brown and wither and fall off. They call it tomato blight. I think it, I don't know what it actually is, but they call it tomato blight. And it's because the weather has been so wet and gloomy this summer. It's like living in Seattle. Basically, if you want to do anything in New England over this summer, if you wanted to do anything, you had to plan it around the rainstorms. <laughs> so it's it's not 100% a bad thing because all the lawns are nice and green, right? Nobody had to water, ever. Put the hoses away. And as a matter of fact, I mixed up a bucket of fertilizer, right? You mix the fertilizer in the water in a bucket. I did that in June in my garden, and I left it out there. And I haven't had to refill it. The rain just keeps topping it up as I use it. And I did get some splendid heirloom tomatoes on those blighty vines. These nice golden tomatoes with red veins, incredibly scrumptious. Have them with a little goat cheese. Very yummy. So not a total loss. Uh, Yvonne made me plant onions, even though I told her that onions don't grow in my garden, and they didn't. They withered and died. I also had a fun experiment where I planted a bunch of old sprouted potatoes in my compost bin, and they grew like gangbusters until something discovered how yummy they were and ate them all up from the, from the bottom up. They ate them. And the composting process is amazing. With all this rain, that particular bin where I planted those potatoes started off at probably four feet of leaves and compost, and now it's about a foot of soil, so a, you know a quarter of that. And I'll spread that out for next year's garden. I had a very robust crop of peas, so much so that I just gave up on harvesting them after a couple of weeks. They're a pain in the ass to shell and I had the same thing with beans. I harvested a couple times, but ran out of energy. And uh, same with my red raspberries that are now in their second fruiting. I just can't keep up. So I pick them when I want them, put them in my oatmeal. I had a great crop of lettuces early because of all the rain, which was great. Ate them all. The only sort of annoying part was having to share them with slugs. Slugs are not good to eat. I had a good crop of kale until the worms got to it. And I had an outstanding crop of green squash and zucchini. I barely kept up for all of June, July, and August. My herbs were all very stout. I especially enjoyed the invasive mint plants this year for making tea in my home office in the apocalypse. And I got a fair amount of cucumbers. It was a pretty short season for those, but I got a few and a reasonable amount of these yellow, yeah, I wouldn't call them hot peppers, but just sort of yellow pointy peppers. But my real successes, outside of the green squash, were zinnias and sunflowers. Yeah. So I had never, ever been able to grow a single sunflower, because the local rodent population, the chipmunks, they love sunflower seeds. And if you plant them, they will dig them out and eat them. I tried putting chicken wire down so they couldn't get it, but they got them anyhow. I tried sprouting the sunflower seeds first and then planting them, but they just ate, pulled up the sprouts and ate the seeds off the bottom. So this year, I built a little hothouse frame and I grew my sunflowers in peat pots. And I let them get about a foot tall before planting the whole pot into the garden. So you see sunflowers, they also don't like to be transplanted. So you have to plant the whole pot. 
And if you grow them in peat pots, you just uh, sort of cut the bottom out of the pot and they grow through the pot. These sunflowers, this variety, were Russian giants. And they got about eight feet tall and had great big happy flowers on them. And I have now harvested them and we will see if I can get some seeds to eat. So I have to figure out how to dry sunflower seeds. It's my next thing. Now the zinnias, as it turns out, were a mistake. My daughter started them. She started a bunch of seeds. She and I have sort of the same uh, the same process where we plant a bunch of seeds and then forget what we planted. But she gave them to me thinking they were peppers. and But they ended up being zinnias. And they grew to be about six foot tall, big bushes covered with flowers, orange, pink, red, just wonderful cut flowers to bring in the house for a little liveliness of decor in the kitchen. And now I will present you with my other reasonable success this year. But first, I need to tell you an allegorical story. Now, I've read a book many years ago called Exodus by Leon Uris. And in this book, he tells of the story of Israel, the establishment of the modern state of Israel. And in the book, he talks about how when the settlers were establishing the first kibbutz, they raised pigs. And pigs aren't kosher. So when they talked about the pigs or listed them in inventory, they referred to them as turkeys, not pigs. Which brings me to my last reasonable success in my garden, my Colombian tomatoes. Now, I used to grow the old varieties of these Colombian tomatoes back in the 70s when it was illegal to do so. Now, in 2021, in the state of Massachusetts, there is no prohibition on growing Colombian tomatoes for personal purposes. So I bought 20 seeds of a variety of these tomatoes, whimsically called Purple Kush. And don't get me wrong, I don't eat these tomatoes anymore. I just like to grow them. About 15 of these seeds sprouted, 15 or 16. I gave 10 away to friends. I planted five in my garden, and two survived. But here we are at the end of September, and they are quite vigorous. They are like little Christmas trees, about three to foot tall, and you can smell them from about 20 feet away. Now, I'm not going to try to bring these inside the house to winter them over. I'll harvest them when the frost is approaching, and I'll probably, my plan is to hang them in the attic to dry. So if any of you out there have a hankering for a Colombian tomato casserole, you can send me a note. I hear they make excellent baked goods. Oh, and apples. I've got a tree full of apples. I have made applesauce. Very good. I'm eating like six apples a day. I am going to turn into an apple. So that's your garden update. How was it? Was it everything you hoped it would be? I hope so. In section two, I'm going to talk about the supply chain because the supply chain is on the top of everyone's mind. But like I said, in section one, we'll talk about starting from scratch. And here's the thing. I told you before that I am doing a fitness project at work. And I and I leaned into this, right? Because because I it's fun to talk about this stuff I actually know something about uh with my workmates. And because of that, I am getting these types of how do I do this? How do I start from scratch? sort of questions, right? And it's fun and rewarding to be able to answer them, to add that value from all these years of doing this. So in a sense, I was afraid to lean in at work because I thought it might get me, I don't know, somehow singled out. But it turns out by leaning in, I'm getting rewarded. So find something, my friends, that you can lean in on and see what comes back to you as a result. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. How do you start running from a point of zero? And this was a question I got asked from someone I worked with last week. They were at that point in their lives where they were frustrated with their health and they knew they wanted to get moving and start getting fit. And they wanted to start running. They used to run when they were younger, but it had been a long time. 
and they were starting from scratch. And there's a lot of questions, things we take for granted. How do you start? Where do you start? When do you start? How much do you do? And there's also a lot of fear when you're starting from scratch. How do I stick with it? How do I keep from getting injured? How do I keep from looking stupid? How do I know I'm doing the right thing? How do I know I'm not doing that something dumb? So let's look at these questions and see if we can shed some light on them. And feel free to share this with your your friends who are starting from scratch. So first question, you know, where, when, how much? Well, here's what I would recommend. Find a place that you can call your own. A safe place. Whether that is the local high school track, the road around your neighborhood, a nice quiet local park, the treadmill at the gym, a treadmill in your basement, in your house. Where is that place that you will go to to do your running and walking? Find that place and make it familiar. Make it your own. Make it easy to get to, easy to start, non-intimidating. And when? When do you do this? Well, you could find time that works for you. Set yourself up for success. Find a time where it doesn't feel like a chore. Find a time where this activity feels like a reward. Mornings are the time when you have the energy and the focus to get it done. If you can build your exercise into your morning routine, that creates the highest probability that life won't get in the way. But if getting up early feels like a chore and makes you miserable, well, you know, that's probably not going to last, so don't do it. It shouldn't be a punishment. Some people find lunch a great time to go because it breaks up the day. Others, like myself, like afternoons and evenings. If you're not sure, try different times. See what works. Remember, though, that if you are doing this new exercise routine, you're not doing something else. So try not to make it feel like a sacrifice. Make it a routine. Make it a reward. Something you can look forward to. And a quick note on age. Age makes a difference, but shouldn't stop you. If you're younger than, yeah, let's say 40, you'll recover and build strength very quickly and see fast improvement. You know, between 40, 45, you know, 40 to 50, your body is still very strong and capable. But you want to give yourself more time to recover. And if you're over 50, definitely need to give your body a day or two off between efforts to recover, especially when you're starting. Give your body a chance to get used to it. And what this means is that instead of every day, go every other day or do three times a week. Plan rest days into your week where you don't run at all. It's okay. This will also give you the opportunity, the windows, to do something else like stretching or strengthening on these days when you're not running. And the older you get, the more you need these other things, stretching and strengthening. So how do you get started? Well, if you're just beginning or if you're starting all over, you're best suited by starting with a run-walk cadence. Yep. Go out for some amount of time. Let's say 20 minutes. Don't worry about distance. Just do it by time. And just do it every other day. Start by walking to warm up, then run 30 seconds, walk 30 seconds. First couple of run walks, just do that. And your goal is to finish. Not speed, not time, not distance, any of that stuff. Just 20 minutes, 30 30s, get it done three times in a week. Got it? Good. So do this for a week or so. And then try increasing the run times in there. Maybe walk 30 seconds and run 60 seconds. And you might find a spot that feels right. And you can stay there with that cadence. No problem. If you start feeling good, you can increase the length of the exercise, the length of time you're out there, or the length of the running intervals within there. Walk less, run more. Make it a game. Set yourself some goals in terms of distance and time and slowly work up to them. And don't do too much too fast. Ramp up slowly. Pay attention to how you feel. And if you have pain, 
stop, back off. Many people use the this Galloway run-walk training method, and you can buy one of Jeff's books or look at his content online, all that advice that's out there, and figure out that cadence for you. There's a whole community around that. So the other big question we always get asked, and it's a hard question, is what about shoes? That's a hard question. It's a perfectly reasonable question, but uh, one I like to avoid because shoes are quite specific to the individual, and the right shoes for you might not be the same for me. Since you're just starting out, you really do have an opportunity to make choices that people who have been running for a long time might find harder. And one quick tip for you, one thing you can do is ascertain whether you have high arches or low arches in your feet, because this will rule out a lot of shoes if you have one or the other. And the next choice you can make as a beginner is whether you want to start as a minimalist shoe runner. So there's this whole category of shoes that mimic the natural shape and form of the foot. And these shoes are known as zero drop shoes because there's no elevation in the heel. So the shoes are flat, like your normal foot. And the advantage to these shoes is that they encourage the natural mechanics of good running form. My point here is that if you're starting from scratch, you have this opportunity to start minimalist. And this could help your running going forward. It's a lot harder to change to minimalist than to start minimalist. Uh, It takes a few months to get used to these types of shoes, so you have to be patient. But it's a good time to do that just when you're starting. Alternatively, when you're just starting out, you can look for simple shoes. So avoid anything that's corrective or complicated. Look for simple, neutral cushion shoes. And that will get you started until you figure out what you need. As you get into a program, you'll start to notice what feels right and what doesn't. And there's no silver bullet when it comes to shoes. You'll have to experiment with different options within that theme and find what works for you. And if a shoe is giving you trouble, don't be afraid to change it out. Try something else. What about running form? How do you do it? What are the mechanics here? Well, running is a very simple human activity. But that being said, there are efficient ways to run and not so efficient ways. And as you are just getting started, you have an opportunity to learn good form from the start. So you don't have to fix it or re-engineer it later. So good form is running In a nutshell, good form is running upright, hips forward, center of gravity, over where your foot hits the ground, landing on the forward flat part of the foot. This is called the forefoot, not the toes, not the heels, the flat part, the part of the foot that is like the palm of your hand. So if you land there, it allows your natural shock absorption in your legs to work. It'll prevent injury. Don't Reach the foot out in front of you and land on the heel or the back part of the foot. You want your feet to be fast and light. Hit that flat spot, kick it up behind you. And if you count the number of times your foot hits the ground, should be around 170 per minute or higher. That's called cadence. So there's music out there you can download and listen to it that has that same beat. You just got to count the foot strikes. So keep your hands high and loose. Don't swing them around. Don't rotate your body or swing your arms. Try to try to have a quiet body. And the reason this is all important is you want to burn this stuff in early. And it will keep you from getting injuries and make you much more efficient as you learn how to run, as you ease into your practice. So it's always forms one of those things that's good to get early. Another question is, do I need to do some sort of stretching and strengthening? Well, if you're just getting started, it may be too much to ask to also take on a stretching and strengthening routine. But if you keep it simple, you can get outsized benefit from very little effort. 
have a simple set of two or three exercises and stretches that you do as part of your running routine. Let's say a few push-ups and a few leg lifts or something like that. A simple stretching routine that hits the major muscle groups. Do the, these exercises, these stretches before and do the, the stretching after. And you're probably only adding five minutes to your workout. It'll help a lot. And I hesitate to talk about all this because as soon as you start loading stuff into your plan, the more complicated it gets and the more likely you will not do it, especially early on. So let me leave it at this. Stretching is good. Strength is good. But get the walking and the running in and establish that routine before complicating things. You need to set yourself up to win, not put barriers in your way. So what about these beginner runner injuries? What about these injuries? Well, if you're just starting up, there are muscles and connective tissue that you haven't stressed for many years. You need to give that stuff time to respond and get stronger. Muscles will respond very quickly in a couple of weeks. Tendons, ligaments, bones, things like that, they take longer to get used to what you're doing. They can take a few weeks to months. So listen to your body. If you have an odd pain, pay attention to it. Don't be afraid to take a day off. Don't be afraid to do less. Take the long view. You want to generate a consistent habit for your lifetime. And listening to your body will help you avoid chronic problems. Each new pain is an opportunity to learn something, something new about your body. These early injuries will lead you to new stretches, to new exercises, and other things that will increase your set of skills. So work with the aches and pains to learn about yourself. And finally, and finally, find your tribe. You need support. Start casting around for people who are on the same journey as yourself. There are plenty of beginners out there. Find them. Trade notes. Share stories. Share successes. Be part of something bigger. And that will help you stay with it. And I'll leave it at that. Go ahead and get started. Enjoy the gift that is running. And the incredible positivity and all the doors it will open for you. And now for today's featured interview. All right, give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do, why we're talking. So my name is Chris Twiggs, and I am the chief training officer for Galloway Training. I work for Jeff Galloway, and I coordinate training programs for different local running programs around the world, about 70 running programs around the world, and I coach a bunch of individuals through our customized training plans. So how many folks you said you had over 200 in your... Stable my current, yeah, my I, at any given time, I have about 200 current clients, and then they're on six month schedules. So some will roll off, new ones get added all the time. But the current number, the active number, stays around 200 for my customized folks that I coach. And then we've got several thousand in the local training programs. Although that's that number's down a bit, obviously, because in person running programs are still needing to rebuild from the last 18 months. That's true. But on the flip side, there are way more runners right now. I'm you aren't wrong. See, I am seeing them out there. Yeah, you are wrong. And and for folks like us, Galloway training, we've got all different levels. We've got all different speeds and abilities. But if we were to be forced to categorize ourselves for one thing, beginners is a good thing that, that I think we're really well known for. And yeah. so a lot of those people that have gotten into running, when the gyms closed down and they couldn't go in and do their fitness classes, they started walking and running. We're in a good position to help those folks and welcome them into the community. Yeah. People found the time to get out every day. And I, I think we were talking about this. I saw people out with their kids, right? Yeah. And it's like, that's great. But it really is. It's fantastic. I mean, we Jeff Galloway likes to say that for every person who is a runner, you're having a positive impact to about 10 other people that will see you do that and will be inspired by that. They may not start running the next day. They might not go on a run with right. you, but that's a push in that direction. Yeah. I mean, my wife being a perfect example, right? She just ran her first 5k. That's awesome. Last that's weekend awesome. while we were down there in Pennsylvania Yeah, and that she's been watching me do it for 25 years, right? Yeah. So. She finally figured it out. 25 years. It's a quick learner. Some people, it yeah. takes a lot longer. Yeah. 
given that, how did you get this special role within the Galloway organization? Did you do something else before that? Yeah, I was a college English professor. Oh, okay. Uh, but I was a runner. My, my wife got me into running when we were dating. And then uh, after we got married, she suggested our first marathon. We ran that together. And it was when we were preparing for that first marathon, we came across Jeff Galloway's book on running, which is just an amazing book. And we utilized that book to train for our second marathon. And we met Jeff. And then I got to know him through his books. He was working on some other book projects and I offered my help and he took me up on it. And so I worked with him on some stuff like that. And then he suggested that I start a local Galloway program because there was not one where I was living. And so I started a Galloway program and then I moved and I started another Galloway program and I moved and I started a third Galloway program. Every time we moved, I wanted friends and I know the best friends I'm going to get are going to be runners. So I started those local programs. And then when the national program director retired, he offered me the position and it was a good opportunity for me to stay home with the kids. They were at an age when they would benefit from that. And so kind of the Mr. Mom type of role, I did my remote working starting in 2010 and stayed home with the kids through middle school and high school. And it's been fantastic. And then the the online coaching, the customized training plans thing is something that's evolved just in the last five or six years as online training platforms have grown. And as Jeff's, the demand for personal coaching from Jeff got to be so great that, and he still does that. He still does e-coaching. But the demand got so great that he decided to introduce sort of a, a, a mid-level version of that. So I'm kind of the physician's assistant or nurse practitioner to Jeff's doctor, to use that analogy. Yeah, that's a great role. You get to do what you love and uh, Gosh, yes. you get paid for it. Few of us can say that. Tell you the funny story is uh, I interviewed Jeff on this podcast way back when, probably, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago, because he's that guy. Everybody interviews Jeff. Yeah. And about how he invented walking, and <laughs> just like Yasso invented running at the track. Right, right. right. And uh, then uh, I got a uh, email from Kevin, from Kevin Gwynn, mm-hmm. and said, can you introduce me to Jeff Galloway? And I said, oh, my yeah. goodness. I You're said, yeah, sure. No problem. Jeff, meet Kevin. Kevin, meet Jeff. And the rest is history. So Fantastic. What a great supporter uh, Kevin has been of Jeff. And I'm, I'm a big supporter of Kevin's. He's a fantastic guy. It was neat getting to hang out with him and with you and with so many extra milers last weekend up in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's an interesting crew. It's a different crew, right? Because I, like you, I've hung out with a bunch of different of these tribes. There's little tribes within the running universe and I've hung out with a lot of different tribes. So it's an interesting tribe. What you really learn about folks like the extra milers is that running is not an exclusive sport anybody can do. So and, and get the same benefit and the you same get the joy. same benefit. And you know what? I think, I mean, while there may be those that bicker and, and argue family squabbles maybe that happen among runners, I have found that some of the most successful, fastest, winningest runners, and I don't just mean Jeff Galloway, are also the kindest and the most accessible and the most supportive of beginning runners. Meb comes to mind as someone that's out there at races, supporting people, cheering on age groupers. I got to do some pacing this summer with Jim Walmsley to go back to the ultra Thing. nicest guy you'll ever meet and the most enjoyable person to spend a few hours hiking with. Yeah. Great. So if you had to sort of, again, distill it down into the 200 word nutshell, the Galloway method that you're mostly prescribing, what is that? So it's about finding the right run walk ratio to allow you to sustain uh, the effort that you're looking for in a race. So whether that is, I just want to jog along and have fun. And so I'm going to do a gentle run-walk ratio, or it's, I want that level of sustainable discomfort uh, to get that personal best or whatever. And um, so the Galloway method is about finding a good run-walk ratio to accomplish that. And there is a good run-walk ratio for every person for every pace. And so faster people tend to run longer between walk breaks, slower people may walk more than they run, but either method is gentler on the body than running continuously and faster than walking continuously. Yeah. And what I've found at all training plans, including Galloway, because I've read all the books too, they tend to converge as you get faster, right? So as you get towards the top, it's all mile repeats and long runs, right? It is. 
Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> the only difference when you throw in Galloway, the two differences you might see, Jeff believes in a 26 mile long run prior to a marathon, even for beginners. And we'll use 29 milers for advanced runners. Yeah. Uh, for example, my wife's uh, got a 29 miler this weekend because she'll be running Boston next month. So that's the one difference, the length of the long run. And then obviously the other one is the walk breaks. Even with really fast runners, we'll still put in occasional walk breaks. Now for those really fast guys, you may talk, be talking about 15 or 20 seconds every two miles, but yeah. those, those breaks were still there. Yeah. And you can sort of like walk the water stop. That Precise, no, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. You know, and, and Boston's a great place to do that, right? Those water yeah. stops. Yeah. You want to skip the first one. The first one's a bit of a melee, but uh, after that, yeah, every 5K. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good place to do that. And whether or not they know it, they're probably doing that anyhow. Or the, they're walking a lot at the very end. That's yeah. what we tend to see. People hit the wall and they're walking a ton at the end. And so they may get the same finish time as one of our runners is doing run walk, but they're not very happy with themselves having walked so much toward the end. Yeah, it's a miserable, yeah, backloading all the misery. It's funny because that's what I love about the marathon, about a road marathon, is you're trying to find what is that razor's edge, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're taking a 100% of your capability and spreading it out over 26.2 miles. Yeah. And, you know, how do you do that? And that's that, sustainable. It's an adventure every time. Yeah, that level of sustainable discomfort, right? And yeah. you think you found it, And so often we get to the finish line and we find out, oh, we had gas in the tank, uh, could have gone a little faster, or maybe we could have gone a little faster. Or you find out, nope, nope, that was, I was too far over the edge. And, um, or it's not my day, right? Oh, there's so many reasons that can be, so many reasons that can be the case too. So do you see, uh, did you look at Molly Seidel's uh, Strava from the Olympic marathon? I did not look at that. I should look at it because her heart rate, is pegged for the yeah. last like 10k she's running like a 160 something so yeah. she's basically full out 5k sprint effort level for the last 10k of that mag- marathon right how inspiring how inspiring i mean she yeah, so, she so discomfort that. level i can only imagine <laughs> when you've got an olympic medal on the line i think that's you're willing to suffer a little bit more than others i find as i get older i'm less willing to suffer yeah know? i hear you I've got to pick my races when I'm willing to do it. I've got maybe maybe three a year where uh, I know going in, there'll be a lot of suffering and I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. And you've made the step up or the step sideways to alters now. You've run, you said you ran over 20 alters at this point. 20 100 milers. 100 20, milers. Sorry. Yeah, 20, real alters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody's walking in a 100 miler. So do you use the same sort of cadence or how do you... No, how do, you, um, how do you work an ultra with the Galloway method? It's course specific. It's really course specific. So for example, the Keys 100 is one that I've done. And a friend of mine, actually, who's a Galloway runner has won the Keys 100 using walk breaks. And at that race, it's so flat, as you can right. imagine, right? It's yep. so flat in the Keys. So there you really can get into a rhythm. You can get into a, a regular run-walk ratio that you're going to use and I've got a couple of my clients just did the Pinellas Trail 46 miler. And again, they did a very regular run-walk ratio. So on a flat course, you can do that. Uh, the 100 that I just did was Hard Rock, which has got 33,000 feet of climb. So it's walk, power hike, or crawl the up, depending on how steep they are. And then it's run like hell down and just try not to get hurt. Right. Yeah. Run, And that's a classic sort of ultra mantra, right? It really to, is to hike the hills and and run the downs and, and run, run the, the downs. Flats. And and you're absolutely right. When I came into the world of ultra running, I found lots of references in articles, books, blogs. I found lots of references to Jeff Galloway. I found a an online calculator that calculated how much running and how much walking would result in what sort of pace. Which had Jeff had not developed that online calculator, had nothing to do with it, but they had his name on it just to reference that this is the guy that's come up with this method. So the respect for Jeff Galloway in the ultra world has always been very high, even when he didn't know about it. Um, He finally did write a book. Jeff's trail running book does have some training schedules in it for 50K, 100K, 50 mile and 100 mile races. So he addressed the ultra runners in there, but Jeff's not an ultra runner himself, really. No, well, he's getting a little old for that, right? He's uh, (laughs) He is probably 
Um, but he's still running. He's got a book called Running Until You're 100, which is uh, a lot of school. You bet. What have you learned from your years of doing this? What stands out? From the running or from the coaching? From the coaching. That no matter how fast someone is, running is as important to them as it is to anyone else. Walking, you mean? Well, running and walking, not just the method, but I mean, Oh, you mean the the, the, the value of the activity to the That's person? That's what I'm talking the intrinsic about. Intrinsic value, yeah. Right. That person who is finishing a seven hour marathon, the role that running and walking has in their lives is as big and as important as that person who is running a two thirty marathon. Yeah. Um, now, the person who's running the two ten marathon and is trying to make a living off of it. That's different. That's a job. But for all the rest of us that are not, whether you're a Boston qualifier or not, whether you're running sub three hours, sub four hours, or just trying to get in under seven hours, running matters to all of those people. And so the care with which I write a schedule and the care with which I work someone's running around the other things that they're doing in their lives is the same, no matter what a person's goal is. I've had athletes that have won their age group in Ironman triathlons. I've had runners that have missed cutoffs in races and and have had to drop both ends of the spectrum. But the care with which I write their schedules and the importance that running has to them is the same. I love that. I love that I get to help people of all levels and all abilities. Yeah. So when I look at the only thing that ever I wouldn't say bothered, right? But this is the sort of the thought process I had coming from the marathon world. I look at somebody like a Jim who we were hanging out with or Mm -hmm. um, those kind of guys who are relatively fit individuals. And I say, you know what? I could drop them into a 14-week program of speed work and distance, and I could get 40 minutes off their marathon finish. Oh, yeah. But I'm asking the wrong question, right? That's not what's important to them. Nope. Nope. I mean, I've got a runner who is... Very talented. A lot of a lot of runners are very talented. I've got a runner who's very talented who was getting really into it. Was very focused on some goals, ambitious goals, but not out of reach. And he texted me and he said, "Look, this is having a negative impact in my marriage." And it just hit me this week. Something came up. Something happened. I got to back off. I'm keeping this goal and that goal, but these other things have got to go. Can you help me? And so, of course, I rewrote his schedule, got it down to where we could just focus on the things that he cared about. And his priorities are in the right place, right? Yeah. Could he qualify for Boston? Yes. Could he win his age group in a certain race? Yes. Do these ultra distances? Yes. But at what cost? And so, that's so life balance. It's a life, life balance. balance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've got a couple of runners that I look at and I just shake my head because I'm like, you're sandbagging. Yeah, exactly. You know, or they'll give me pushback (laughs) on a workout and they'll say, oh, you're having me do those 800s too fast. Where I'm like, no, I'm not having you do them too fast. Here's the math. Here's why I've got it scheduled that way. Believe in yourself as much as I believe in you. But I also know that, you know. But that's the key, right? That's the key. And that's what I said to um, Kevin and these guys is that you want to make sure you're saying I can't do it because you're choosing not to do it, not because you think you can't do it. Because that's the magic of this whole thing is you'll discover you can do it. Absolutely. And then that cascades over into the rest of your life. So don't hard things are hard for a reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the mental side of things is really huge. I'm sure you've had it in your own running where there was a certain time goal or there was a certain distance goal or something that you just didn't think you were ever going to break through. You couldn't imagine yourself being the type of person that broke through that barrier and then once you broke through that barrier, you didn't have to train any harder. You didn't have to right. work any harder. It's yeah. like, suddenly I can do that all the time. And so there definitely is that believe in yourself type of experience that bears so out. Yeah, uh, that's the only thing I'd say, well, are they missing this, right? By, by going yeah. too easy on themselves. But that's me being judgy because I'm me. I don't have a right to tell other people what they should do with their lives. But other than that, I, I have been thinking, especially as I get older, What's that that run life balance, right? Yes. How do you back off from going to the edge every single time? And there are because times because it's just not sustainable. No. And there are times, I mean, I do remember one my first hard rock, I remember getting an injury during the race. And I was looking down at an aid station. Aid station was about 82 miles or so. And I'm looking down at the aid station. I've badly twisted my ankle. I thought this should be it. And I told myself, this is the type of injury that when people talk about I used to be a runner, this is what they talk about. Yeah. And I thought for the long-term sustainability of my running, maybe I should stop down there. I didn't, 
because I thought, yeah, this is the one, this is the hill I'm willing to die on. Literally. This is that if I finish this one, it's okay. If I never run again. And sometimes there are those cases I had a runner really, really wanted to do a marathon and, um, had a bad knee and his doctor told him you'll be able to do the marathon, but you may never be able to run again after that. And he said, okay, let's deal. Take it. I'll take it. Sometimes those things are worth it, but it's gotta be up to that runner to decide what's that I'm willing to take. And from, for most of us, it's, we fall on the Jeff Galloway side. I just want to run until I'm a hundred and I'd rather run yeah. slowly, but forever than run fast for a little bit. One of my professors in grad school used to talk about burning the future to light the present. Uh, and once in a while, we've got those occasions when you're willing to do that. But most of the time you just want a nice dull light for the rest of your life. When I used to train hard and go deep, there would be this period in the training plan, your typical 12 to 14 week plan where you get into the final third of that, where the the volume and the quality is really high. And I used to call it the dark place. Yes. Because you're just waking up, you're looking at that schedule and going, all I got to do is today, just got to get through today. And you're just in a really dark place. And I'm wondering if that, if you find that in your sort of casual runners, right? Yeah, you do for sure. There's a point where they start to say, this is the volume is too much or the time is too much or this, the intensity is too much. And that's when they start to have all these phantom pains and they yeah. start to have a lot of doubts and that's okay. That's why there's a taper. That's yeah. why before the race, you get some time, maybe depending on the race distance, it might be a week, two weeks, three weeks where the intensity comes down and your body gets to recover. But this is how you, you temper steel, right? This is how you get stronger is by yep. stressing the system a bit. Yep. Stress and recover, stress and recover. And that last big push is a big push. It is. Yeah. Especially with you guys doing the over distance, 29 milers for a seven hour marathoner. That's like a weekend experience. <laughs> you listen to a lot of podcasts during that one. Yeah, but I'm up against one of those right now. I got to do the virtual bus and I'm, I'm injured. So I'm going to do whatever I'll do. Uh, so now that I know, I can do 30 30s and just uh, knock out a six hour marathon. And you know what? And you recover, you bounce back. That's the great thing about run walk is it allows you to come back home and take a shower and then mow the lawn or play with the dog or go coach a soccer game. You can have a regular life, even yeah. though you're doing those longer distances. Yeah. And that's what I always liked about it is it's an enabler, mm-hmm. right? You're enabling people who otherwise might not be able to do something to do it, right? Yeah, most people don't want to do it if it means that they have to take the rest of the weekend in bed or in an ice bath. You know, some do some, that's what they're looking for, but most of them, they want to fit running into the rest of their lives, not fit their lives around their running. Yeah. And you as a coach, I think it gives you credibility given that you're, you know, you're the Boston qualifier, you're the the hard rock 100 guy. It gives you that credibility so they can, if anybody gives them a hard time, they go, ah, look at this. I get this guy here, this hardcore guy coaching me. I think it helps. I do think it helps. I get tagged once in a while on those Facebook posts where someone's looking for a coach and they'll say, well, Hey, Chris has done this and Chris has done that. And he's qualified for Boston. He's run it a few times. He's done hard rock or he's done this and that. And um, yeah, I like that. And that doesn't mean that you don't have to win a Super Bowl to coach somebody to a Super Bowl, but it helps if you've played in a Super Bowl. So yeah. All right. So we'll let you get back to work. How do people find you? Well, they can find me at jeffgalloway.com. There's a customized training plan link there. My email address is chris at jeffgalloway.com. And I'm Twigs on Instagram and Twitter and all the other social, all the other stuff, come up with a new one and I'll try to get there. All right. Well, thanks for your sage advice. And it was great to meet you finally. Nice meeting you too. And I've enjoyed your podcast and I will follow along in the future. All right. Good for you. Thanks, Chris. We'll see you. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. All right. Fun, fun, fun. Let's talk about supply chain. Yeah. So what I do for a living for the last 30 something years is at the intersection of supply chain and technology. And this has taken many forms over the years from consulting to sales to startups. I really never chose a career path in supply chain or technology. I just happened to get my first job working in logistics for a technology company, and it progressed from there. The interesting thing is that all of a sudden, as I roll towards the twilight of my career, supply chain is front and center in the world's zeitgeist. I even had 
one of my running buddies asked me on a ride last weekend, hey, what's going on with this supply chain? Wow. Since I'm an expert, why don't I touch on some of these uh, things in the supply chain? So what is a supply chain? Well, this is a label used to refer to all the activities it takes to get a product to its consumer. So let's take an example. Let's say your phone. You got a phone in your pocket. Let's look at that phone. How does that phone end up in your pocket? How did that phone end up in a store or the website where you bought it? Somebody has to make it and send it to that store. Send it to you, maybe, right to your house. You and your desire to have this phone in your pocket and your willingness to fork over some cash for it. That, my friends, is demand. To make it, they need to have manufacturing and packaging facilities, and these could be anywhere in the world. These are the manufacturing, assembly, and distribution links in the supply chain. So they need to have all the components that go into the phone to assemble it, right? Plastic, cameras, metal, circuits, chips, all this stuff. And each of these comes from a different supplier in a different place around the world. And these are the sourcing and procurement links in your supply chain. And each of these suppliers, in turn, need raw materials to make the components. Rare earth metals, industrial plastics, chemicals. These are the raw material and ingredient links in the supply chain. And then at the end of the day, they have to get that phone to you or to the store as well. This requires finding and buying all this stuff from our uh, suppliers and moving all the bits and pieces to the manufacturing sites and the packaging sites and then off the distribution facilities and finally out to you. And this, my friends, is the logistics and distribution part of the supply chain puzzle. Distribution centers, ports, trucks, planes, trains, boats. It's all an amazing choreography. All these companies and processes working together across the globe to bring you that phone. The modern global supply chain is an amazing thing. We have been working for decades to drive cost and time out of this chain for you to get your phone when you want it at a great price. As a result, the links in this chain are quite tightly coupled. In the past, there would have been buffers in the supply chain. What does that mean? Well, it means that there would be extra time and extra inventory sprinkled across the supply chain. Believe it or not, you would have wanted that phone. You could have ordered it and waited six months to get it because of these buffers. This extra time and inventory... They acted like shock absorbers when something went sideways in the supply chain. But this extra time and inventory costs money. So we drove it out through applying more efficient processes and technology. Yeah, I helped. So the modern supply chain is based on lean practices. And this makes it very efficient. It can also make it a little bit fragile. So the next thing you need to understand, we need to talk about, is the bullwhip effect. And what this means is that changes in supply and or demand will get amplified as they move through the supply chain. So it's like cracking a whip. Those waves travel through the supply chain and they get bigger as they travel. Here's how that works. Let's say your phone is featured in a viral video. And all of a sudden, instead of a 1,000 phones a month, you're now selling 2,000 phones a month. What do you do? Well, you order more, right, from your suppliers. But everyone else has the same idea. So your supplier doesn't have enough. So what do they do? Well, they start trying to allocate their existing inventory, but they also increase their lead times. They say, you know, it took a day, but now it's going to take a week. And they also turn around and order more from the manufacturer. But they want to make sure they have enough, so they order more than they need. They order 30% extra. So the next link in the chain now, down there at that manufacturer or that distribution place, 
they see their demand go up by the original increase plus 30% extra from everybody, extra safety stuff. And they turn around and do the same thing to their suppliers. And by the time that demand signal gets to the other end of the chain, it has been inflated by thousands of percentage points. So what happens next? Well, everybody starts increasing their lead times, thinking that, hey, that'll give me a chance to catch up. But what actually happens is when they increase their lead times, that causes everyone in the next link to order more again, because now they have to have enough inventory to cover the extra time. And it's this vicious cycle. So when you get big variability in supply and demand at any place in the supply chain, it causes these big ripples that then turn into waves as they are transferred up and down the chain. And eventually the original demand or supply signal normalizes and everyone is stuck with a bunch of inventory they no longer need. And we throw a big sale. And that's what's been happening since COVID started. You have these major shifts in demand patterns combined with losses of capacity. And this is happening at many different places in the supply chain at the same time around the world globally. So it really is causing a lot of variability, a lot of challenges. So what about the capacity, right? What do I mean by loss of capacity? Well, that's supply. Why can't you find your bacon? Why? Because. To make bacon, you need a big room full of people with sharp knives cutting up pigs. When there is a COVID outbreak, you can't have a big room full of people with sharp knives cutting up pigs. You lose the people and you lose your capacity. You lose your supply. So when COVID hit, a lot of these labor-intensive businesses got shut down. A lot of workers left due to safety concerns because a minimum wage job standing around all day at Pig Oval probably isn't worth dying for. The other two jobs that you hear about a lot these days are warehouse workers and truck drivers. I'll focus a little bit on this because it's interesting to me, (laughs) being a practitioner. So there's been a shortage of truck drivers for a couple decades now, right? Because the baby boomers are aging out. It's hard to attract people who want to drive a truck for a living. And warehousing has exploded in the last 20 years. One, because the supply chain is becoming global, so you have to move all this stuff around. Stuff has to be moved and shipped to where it's needed. It has to pass through a warehouse at some point. And with the explosion of online shopping, the internet, this has created thousands more distribution centers, warehouses. And as a result of that, you need millions of more workers to staff those. And someone has to go to where... Your stuff is being stored in the warehouse. Reach into that box, grab your item, and pack it into another box that they can ship it out to you. It's very labor-intensive. This is why there's so much news about robots and self-driving cars and vehicles and drones. Because labor is your number one constraint and your number one cost. Robots don't show up late. They don't have lunch. They don't ask for health insurance. They don't take coffee breaks. So that's why you see a lot of noise around that. The final point I'll make about these jobs is that they're not really great jobs. You know, when I worked in the warehouse, I don't know, 35 years ago, it was different. I mean, it wasn't a great job still. You didn't get paid a lot, but you weren't as tasked as you are today. Every job now in the warehouse or or in the truck is driven, is tasked by technology. They know where you are and what you're doing every minute of the day. And they work hard to optimize that. Same is true with drivers. Gone are the days when you could swing by your girlfriend's house for a rest stop. They know where that truck is and what it is doing in real time. It's a bit of a catch-22. Labor is your biggest cost, so you throw technology at it to get the most efficiency out of that labor, but this makes the work very hard, very tense. And this is all to say that part of the problem here is that these modern warehouse jobs are sort of soul-sucking for the most people, and that makes them harder to staff. Eventually, all of these jobs will be automated. And I. this is in the next 15, 20 years. 
they thought it would happen by now, but it turns out that humans are very good at complex tasks that are very hard to automate successfully. But eventually they will all be automated because this gap between supply and demand is too great. So my friends, coming back to the current supply chain problems, the COVID stuff, some of the, these problems are structural, meaning they will take a few years to correct. It takes a while to build new warehouses. It takes a while to develop new technologies. It takes a while to build, for instance, computer chip manufacturing. It takes a few years to spin up a foundry. So these are structural problems that will take a couple years to fix. At the end of the day, things will be different. They will be structurally different out the other side of this. But the majority of these Challenges we're seeing in product availability, they're transient, meaning when there's a gap between supply and demand, capital will close that gap very quickly. And what we're seeing today is one of the most variable and uncertain periods of supply and demand in a long time. But the modern supply chain, my friends, is a thing of beauty, and it will respond, and it will respond quickly. The long-term impact is that you will see some increased automation displacing all these labor-intensive jobs at an accelerated rate. And you will see some structural changes to reduce risk and increase flexibility, like moving your supplies to more domestic locations instead of halfway around the world. But we aren't at the apocalypse level quite yet. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Whew. Okay, my friends. We have run-walked through the apocalypse. No, wait, through the end of episode 4-464 of the Run Run Live podcast. Some quick updates for you. Like I said, my apocalypse podcast is in its second season and doing very well. If you want to listen to that, it's uh, over at After the Apocalypse. Uh, that's the podcast name to be found on all your podcast services. And I'm having a lot of fun with that. I haven't been running. Yeah, I haven't been running much. I haven't been trying to let the knee heal. I've been doing my swimming, my lifting, my biking, and that's it. Staying reasonably, keeping the weight off, staying reasonably fit. I volunteered for WAPAC. Been volunteering for a lot of races. Volunteered for the local 5K last weekend. And funny story here. I, you know, the race director asked for volunteers and said, I'll volunteer. And he's a local guy, used to be the track coach, pretty good Iron Man. And I responded, hey, I can help you out. And of course he goes, oh, it's Chris, right? He knows me. Uh, so he ended up putting me in charge of the, cor of the course marshals, right? So remember what I told you, be careful. Somewhere near you is a local race that needs your help and they will suck you in. So that was fun. That was fun. Good day. Nice weather. I, As I promised, here's my Ollie Wally, the crazy golly update. So Ollie is about two years and a couple of months old, three months old. So what's that make it? 24 plus 3, 27 months old. And we have now been through four sessions at K9 training. Both my wife and I are going up to the training, which is great. So he gets that consistency and he is doing really well. So one of the best things that we learned a couple weeks ago was to wait at the door for me to give that release command before he goes through it, right? So he's not trying to claw his way through the doors. You're trying to get through it with a cup of coffee in your hand. It's really useful. And he's a lot better on the leash. Uh, he sits and stays very well. This is all on leash, though. As soon as I take him off leash, he reverts to being that maniac that he's always been. So they don't do treat training at K9. They're all about the martingale collar, which is a type of choke collar. And you correct the dog by giving them a pop on the choke collar. Doesn't hurt the dog. This is the same kind of training I gave Buddy when he was a puppy. Uh, without the martingale, though, I did it with a regular collar. But uh, Ollie definitely needs the martingale. It doesn't hurt the dog, just gets their attention. So anyhow, he's doing great, and I think it's given him confidence. I had him out yesterday in some pretty busy places, and he responded really well. Next week, 
We have a conversation with Murray, one of our runner friends, who is a South African teaching English in Korea, and he has written a book on meditation. So how about that? That's a lot of things that we like there. To take you out, I'll give you an opportunity to do some good. Yeah, do some good. Here's your opportunity. I am going to run walk the virtual Boston Marathon this year for zero, the end of prostate cancer. This organization is all about ending prostate cancer. You know somebody, man, because I know a lot of people who's going to get beat up by this stupid disease. And it's time we did something about it. 85% of this money goes to research. Since I've gotten so many people in my life that have been impacted by this stupid disease, I told you I'm going to collect for it. So I've set up a page you can donate to. And since they, uh, at this site, they let you set up a vanity URL, which means instead of taking the default, you can choose your own URL. I created one that I'm quite proud of, and I'm going to put it here. I think it's easy to remember. I'm going to put it here at the end of the show so you can go there and do it now. And that would be http colon slash slash support dot zero cancer dot org slash go to slash stupid underscore disease. There you go. Even if you've just come in from your run and you're all sweaty. And you can't sit down at the computer without ruining that chair. Do it anyhow. Grab a towel. Think about all the dads and brothers and friends. And click that link. Support.zerocancer.org forward slash go to forward slash stupid underscore disease. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned... He laughed so hard it made him cry.